Hey, it's Sean Fennessy, one of the hosts of the Prestige TV podcast. HBO's Barry is back for a fourth and final season, and that means I'll be back recapping the show with co-creator and star Bill Hader to dive deep on the themes, scenes, and major moments in the series. Bill will provide insight into how every episode was made and why it's ending. New Prestige TV Barry recaps will go live every Sunday night when the episode ends, so make sure you're subscribed to the Prestige TV podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser. But I am a joggers guy. I just... Once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. If you're busy like me and you're trying to catch your kids' games, it's important to have somewhere where you can go to find a good hotel. We're all over the place. Sometimes you know, we're in Florida, we'll be in New York, we want to take the wife on a quick vacation and get away. Whether you're looking for a relaxing getaway or heading out of town to see the playoffs, Hotels.com app has a perfect hotel for every trip. Compare up to five hotels side by side so you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings without having to switch back and forth between options. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. Welcome back, everybody. I'm so pleased to have this person on the show, you know, because you need some healing vibes out there in the world these days, you guys. We need some healing vibes. And this person brings them in a big way and multi in many different ways, too. Uh, you know, by being an author, a writer, uh, I think an Instagram star, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> but... She has done it in a, in a very honest and cathartic way on Hulu has a new show called Unprisoned, which is kind of based on her experiences with her father and growing up uh, starring Carrie Washington, Delroy Lindo. It is the most watched show on Hulu this year, I believe. So it's really broken out. Great. Unprisoned. Tracy McMillan, welcome to Black on the Air. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Great to be here, Larry. I like, I'm, I'm so glad to meet you like virtually. Absolutely. I I was supposed to go to your premiere and I got sick and I felt really bad about it. And I was like, oh, shoot, you know, <laughs> you know, it was like, Arr! but um, I'm so happy for you and your show. And, you know, we work with a lot of the same people, Carrie, you know, I'm working with on a show, Yvette, all those people. It just just it seems like such a great group over there, too, which is awesome. It really, is. It really yeah. is. I don't even know where to begin. I'm very lucky. <laughs> very, very lucky. Yeah, I bet it must seem surreal, especially this type of uh, show. How did it first come about? Like, when did you first think, you know what? I gotta, I gotta do a show about my, my thing, my stuff. Oh my, my stuff. gosh. I think I first had that thought pretty early on. So I started mm -hmm. my scripted television in 2007. Yeah. And fairly early on, someone said to me, you have to write about what only you can write about. Mm. And I was like, okay, well, right now I just need to pay my rent. So I'm going to write yes, a right. drama. Okay. You're right. <laughs> that's a good idea. I like that idea. Yeah. Tucked it away. And basically in all my other writing, every, you know, essays or mm -hmm. books or 
my spec things I was doing, I would write mm-hmm. what only I could write about. And mm-hmm. that was basically about a lot of relationship failure. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then when I track that back, it's like, well, where does that begin? In mm. respects, it begins with my dad. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we all talk about daddy issues. Right. But in one way, it's like the way that my dad's incarceration impacted me the most mm. in my relationships with men or mm. in my primary attachment relationships, if we were sure. so neutral. So, um, I think what happened was I, so I, I wrote this story a number of ways. I wrote it. I think the first time I wrote it was probably like 2007, 2008. I did it as a kind of a light one hour. Um, it was, Where, had you written it as an essay first? Did it come out in that form? But it's no. so the epiphany was started in scripted form yeah. for you in that journey. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, yes, I wrote it as, um, it was me as if I was still married to my first husband or a version mm-hmm. of him. And we lived in a gated community. Mm-hmm. And I, in that version, I have two kids and mm-hmm. I'm trying to be a normal lady. Cause that, yeah. that used to be kind of an obsession. <laughs> like sure. just want to be normal. Um, <laughs> yeah. Whatever that is. Whatever right? that is. I mean, this <laughs> yeah. is again, this is 16 years ago. And so I right. feel in my illusion that there was such a thing. And that maybe Mm. what would it be like if I was normal and or trying to be. And my dad gets out of prison after many, many years and comes to live with me and my doctor husband Mm. in that version. And in that version, the poster was it was called Life After Life. And the poster was the gated community was the bars. (laughs) Yes. So they were all metaphor. It was basically Mm -hmm. unprisoned. They were all in prison. They were all doing time in various ways. Mm-hmm. So this is a concept because even in foster care growing up, I was very aware that I was r- putting hash marks on the wall just as much as my dad was like mm. long until I get out of here, because this is not where I would want to be, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of, um, like overlap in that experience. I think foster care is very much prison Mm. and incarceration, but it's just a different version of it. So Mm -hmm. anyway, that's where I first wrote it. And then I continued to write, I did it as a half hour. Um, I sold a couple pitches, um, you know, broadcast pitches where I would put that as the main character's backstory. And oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I was really trying to work it out in all of my chipping away. Chipping yeah. away. And then um, in 2019, right before the pandemic, I had a, a breakup. And I was like, you know, I just need to write this. I just need to figure this out once and for all. Yeah. And uh, so I wrote it as a half hour. I called it Unprisoned. Mm. Um, and it was really about a woman who was me if I never left Minneapolis mm. and with a teenage son who's a marriage and family therapist, who's br- getting broken up with another time. And she's like, you know, I need to figure out the source of this wound. And... um that's really the pilot. So I went to Paris, which is what I do when I'm 
<laughs> in need of some sort of something. I go to Paris, I wake you up. become James Baldwin for a while. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I go there, I wake up every morning, I go to this cafe, I write for like two or three hours, and the rest of the day I spend walking around Paris. It was December, wow. right before Christmas, so it was very short days there. Mm-hmm. And after six days, I had this script, and I came back, and there, and I sent it to maybe five people, mm-hmm. and the rest is history. And then I met with Carrie's producing partner, Pilar, and yeah. we hit it off. This was my last meeting before the pandemic. Wow. Yeah, it was like March 9th, um, mm-hmm. Monday, and then the Tom Hanks thing happened on Wednesday. And the world shut down <laughs> on Friday. All right. Stupid Tom Hanks. The whole thing, really, the whole development process happened mm-hmm. at the same time as COVID. And so I took this script and then I got a call on Monday, uh, the next Monday. Carrie wants to make it her next starring. Um, That's huge. I, w- I about fell over. I was like, yeah. whoa. I remember right where I was standing. And then, you know, we're fully in COVID now and a couple months pass and I'm like, you know what? George Floyd had just happened. I was Mm. like, I'm going to go to Minneapolis and I'm going to work on my development of this script from there. Wow. Because that is where it's set. And I don't want to write about the Minneapolis of my childhood. What is happening there now? And LA was such a a bleak place to be Mm -hmm. in the pandemic. At least I could walk around. If I go to Minneapolis, I can walk around Lake Harriet twice a day. And I reconnected with people from high school. I reconnected with my sister, who's in all of my family, my foster family. Mm-hmm. It's just like you come back and have a lunch, but like you're seeing each other regularly. I was there for about four or five months. And it was kind of connecting to a real life, it seems like, right? Yeah. It, it was now you look back, it was life changing. You know, wow. that is the show, you know, the mm-hmm. show and that whole experience go hand in hand. You know, we have a lot of people who listen to the pod or are creatives. They want to do what you're doing, that kind of thing. And the creative process is fascinating because it's different for everything. I try to tell people there's, yeah, there are books that tell you rules, but you know what? There are different ways into shows. You know, the, the, the show about yourself is just one way in, but you've tried different ways where the thing about yourself is just part of the other thing, you know, and that's, that's legitimate too. You never know how something is going to come about because, um, part of making shows, there's an alchemy, I think of zeitgeist, you know, timing and the, the people you have assembled, you know, and those things. It can't just be the one part of it, you know? Yeah, you're not really... I mean, there's a lottery ticket element to it, but look at how many lottery tickets I bought. I've been buying lottery tickets. And this is not like I had one script and I'm like, this is the version. It's like, no, I'm going to keep evolving myself. I always feel like creatively... Where, whatever my next level is, is preceded mm-hmm. by my ne- my inner next level. My own mm-hmm. precedes my uh, professional growth as a, yeah. as a creative, you know? And before this, I wrote TV news for 16 years. So yeah, it's amazing. There was a that piece to this, of writing, yeah. but it wasn't per se creative, you know? Yeah. Um, it's so true. I've tried to do that too, where I'm, 
I'm always kind of updating myself as I'm updating what I'm doing. Like, where am I? What's, what am I expressing here? What's, what's in the world? And like, you have to live in the world too. You can't just, you know, you can't just be exhaling. You have to inhale a lot too. Yes, it's true. Well, and I live in Ohio now, so I'm 100% inhaling all the time. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) You and Dave Chappelle. You know, it's, I get why people move away though. Mm-hmm. There's something about being looking out the window and just, well, I will say from as the relationship expert part of me, it's like what's going on here is a secure base, what we would call secure base and mm-hmm. primary attachment. And I never had a secure base in Los Angeles. Not really. Mm, Certainly not in our careers. We don't have secure base. The people who thrive in in entertainment or Hollywood are just people who can deal with a lot of uncertainty for whatever reason. (laughs) No, it's true. People, when they ask you about showbiz from the outside, they're always asking from that standpoint, you know, and it's like, no, 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 you have to accept that everything can just go away. (laughs) you know. (laughs) And it's funny because abandonment issues, you know, you know, it's a lot in the work and what you do and everything. I saw you say in one, um, article that the show you're not like giving this thing to people it's kind of a cathartic process for you oh. you know you're kind of making it for you right i mean yeah. i feel like that keeps it honest i'm not yeah i'm doing this in some ways for myself and then i know there are millions of other people in my boat um as far yeah. as having you know loving someone who's either formerly incarcerated currently incarcerated justice impacted that is millions Mm -hmm. and millions of people it is almost shocking how many interviews we have done where the interviewer is like my mom my dad my brother my you know relative Mm -hmm. is in prison or was in prison um i wanted to make it safe to talk about because something that i couldn't talk about for a long time i mean decades and then i finally started to talk about it and it was very freeing to talk about. And Mm -hmm. so I feel like, you know, the bigger piece of what I'm trying to do is to break down the stigma, um, break down the otherizing, um, Mm -hmm. and then ultimately hope that at some level that changes hearts and minds and that that changes policy. But I'm not activist per se. I'm a storyteller. I'm a person who shares experience. And in doing so, I hope, um, I don't know, makes other people feel a little less alone. That, that, and heals a little bit of generational trauma. That's like my bigger, my big purpose is that. And writing scripted TV is one way. Hosting family or fiance is another way. My Instagram is another way. And I just sort of wake up and go, you know, you know, how do you want me to do it today? Universe, just Mm -hmm. tell me and I'll go. And, um, you know, here I am. What's the most difficult part of, of dealing with this on screen? Because you are, you have a past that happened. And of course there are particulars of that past, but, but this is fiction, you know, you're putting on screen. How difficult is that of trying to separate? Well, that didn't really happen. Or, "Mm, we have to maybe manufacture this a little bit. Is it, or maybe it's uncomfortable even seeing it, you know, go, Oh fuck. That's what, well, that's what I did. <laughs> that is yeah. I think yeah, all yeah. of the above. There's the one part, which is 
I mean, I'm just going to start by saying life is so amazing. Like if you let life just operate upon you, it will take every single thing and use it. Every single part. It's like, if it were, you know, a whale, it would be like, oh my God, look at this whisker. We, <laughs> we're going to use it this way, you know? So I feel like that's the, so the journalist part of me strives for accuracy mm-hmm. and stri- and understands that there's an audience, you know? Right. And then the scripted television writer in me really knows that these are characters. Sure. We don't have to try. This is not my diary. Right. Not my diary. Tracy's diary. It's not a magazine article. It's not a right. news story. It is not a documentary. Carrie is not playing me. Right. He is. Uh, Delroy is not playing my dad. So having, I do think it was a distinct advantage to not get a show on the air until I'd been doing this 16 years. Uh So good. And in my 50s, because I am clear about the, it's not me. And I'm pretty clear about who I am, (laughs) which is to say, you know, not the, generally people are not who they might imagine they are. So I'm not in there freaking out because I think someone's going to judge me or (laughs) someone thinks this is me. I'm just like, I really am comfortable with whatever misunderstandings people want to have. That's fine. You know? Um, so I don't need it to adhere to some set of facts or some, you know, notion. I can just let it be this amazing collaborative thing. And I actually believe if there's one reason for the show's success, it is that. Like, yes, I'm the creator. Yes, I write a lot. (laughs) Yes, I am sort of like, it's based on circumstances of my life. Then I let everybody in their excellence take it from there. Yeah. You know, production design, you know, all the way up to number one on the call sheet. It's a real collaboration. That's That's all I can say, you know. So, and I think that has been, it also creates a certain tone on the set where I'm not like super nutty or controlling, you know? What you're saying is a gift because to have something so personal and to be able to separate it is huge. You know, to me, it's the only way you can get to something that's, even though it's not direct, it's actually more authentic than if you're trying to just dictate actual circumstances. Yes. Because nobody's mind about who they are, their thoughts about who they are, their thoughts about what happened. That is never it. You know? (laughs) know Yes. Because it's all an interpretation, too. You know? So we know this. So once you know that, you're not trying to make it a hue to only my one viewpoint. That would Mm -hmm. be limiting for a show like this. You've got all these extremely gifted human beings involved Mm -hmm. it's like i am so lucky and i actually feel like that's probably what they're attracted to is that they know Mm -hmm. there's going to be enough space and that i'm not um i've been to a lot of therapy let's just put it like that and i Mm -hmm. have a lot of uh mental and emotional health Mm-hmm. Which is to say, I know I'm anxious. Sure, of course. I'm neurotic in a lot of ways. Sure. 
But there's one thing about being that way and knowing it and being right. that way and being unconscious. I am having having facility versus it controlling. Yes, absolutely. So anyway, it's been I I mean the process. So my son actually um I gave him a job as a sat as a background actor. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. He just turned 26. Is he interested in showbiz at all? Is he does he do I'm like, please take my nap. <laughs> please. You know what I mean? Like, I did not work this hard to not yeah. start you out on third base. And he's like, be a Nepo baby. It's, so anyway, but so he does, he did need a job. And I was like, you know what? I'll, I'll hire you to be in the background. And yeah, that's great. Like, okay, great. So he shows up and then the production unbeknownst to me actually hires him to be the stand in for the kid who played uh, him. Oh, man. So there were moments where there would be a rehearsal or a, a, we would walk onto set and sometimes we would stand next to each other and watch what was happening. Like this like this episode where they go to Alabama. That happened. My son, my dad, and I went to my dad's childhood home mm. in Midway, Alabama. And we stood there and... You know, this is where he was born. We had these moments. We ate the barbecue by the side of the road. Some moments are incredibly autobiographical. Yeah. And there were moments when we would be, um, you know, watching the rehearsal and I would turn to him and we would look at each other and he's, you know, he's t- 20 at the time, 25 year old kid. He's, he's doesn't, he DGAF. Okay. He doesn't think about anything, but there was moments where he would be like, well, uh-huh. that was real. So, you know, that, that was super special, yeah. you know, and the other best moment was at the premiere, we watched a couple episodes and he laughed out loud and I was like, okay, my work is done here. You're like, there you go. He's like, I think I would watch that show. And I'm like, well, that's saying a lot. Cause this is basically <laughs> legacy media as far as he's concerned. I know. <laughs> these games, you know, and watches TikTok and discord and Twitch and all that. So my takeaway from the show is that even though this story is so particular um, father coming you know home from prison and that sort of thing. It kind of feels like comfort food in a lot of ways. Um, part of it is the cast is so amazing. You know, Delroy Lindo, I never thought I'd see him in a comedy doing this, but he's so effortless. Like you can't stop watching him, you know, on screen. Carrie's brilliant and everything, you know, she's just always emotive. Yeah. You know? And so good. But even all the surrounding cast is so great. I mean, that's got to be exciting too. You're like, yes, thank you for this gold. <laughs> there are moments where I've said to the crew, thank you guys for helping me with my therapy. You know, yeah. <laughs> like, I can't. And then I had a lot of people come up to me at the end and say, you know, this is really one of the best shows I've ever worked on. Because the whole tone on set and yeah. people say, how did you come up with this tone? And I'm just like, I didn't come up with it. I mm-hmm. just told the story. And this is the tone. The tone yeah. is, it's funny because life is funny. And I'm a light person and I find humor everywhere. My dad was a light person who found mm-hmm. humor everywhere. Um and then there were times where you're really in your heart, your heart space, or you're in fear, or you're in all the things that happen around a family, you know? Yeah. But I guess what I really wanted to do was a hero and not an anti-hero. I wanted people who were trying 
to be their best because yeah. they're very earnest that way. That's that those Minnesota roots. It yeah. really is. <laughs> it really is. I am yeah. not cool. I don't, I care a lot. I get attached to people. Yeah. Like I don't know. And I wanted to. I wanted to see. I see a lot of protagonists, sometimes female protagonists, especially that I do not relate to at all. I'm like, how yeah. do that? I am always like in my feelings about everything, you know? So that's something I want to explore in season two as well. You know, oh, good. I'm, I'm claiming it right now, Larry. Yes. No, it's going to happen. Trust me. Um, yeah. I'm always interested in, uh, you know, certain themes that are resonating with the world and that kind of stuff. And you talked about, you know, attachment is something that you do, but I don't know. I feel like we live in a world where attachment is, has become more difficult or there are more obstacles to attachment, whether it's resistance to it, whether people don't care about it as much or they just view it differently. Is that a common thing that comes up when you're uh, dealing with people and stuff? Because I I think it's a word we don't hear. We always hear it in the negative, Hmm. but but there's a positive to attachment too. Are you kidding? Attachment is everything. It's what life, it gives, it's life giving really uh, healthy attachment. Yeah. hundred percent. Everyone has an attachment strategy. So there's yeah. no way you're going to be a human being and not have an attachment strategy. That is a uh, standard opera. It's like a steering wheel in a car, you know? Yeah. And the thing is, I think it's impacted by a number of things, but so, I mean, first and foremost, we are primates. People forget that, <laughs> you know, <laughs> they think we're like, Americans or, or, you know, where they think (laughs) like all these other designations, it's like, no, you know, or like whatever Cubs fans, no, you're a primate and primates get born and they are dependent on their caregivers for a long time. Long time. Yeah. Not people who get born or animals who get born and like run across the, we're not horses, you know, like run across the thing like, bye mom. No. All right. Or as soon as you can fly, kicking you out of this nest. (laughs) Five years before we can even make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, you know? So it's like we, attachment is actually our our first need, even more than food, because there is no Mm. food without the attachment. Mm. So we're all coming in with this equipment around attachment. Then you, you bring in things like, I'm going to say capitalism is just a huge piece of this thing mm-hmm. you're talking about. Capitalism is very interested in having you un- unattached from the the family or the primary attachment figure, and it and now they now you have all these needs that are unfulfilled. <laughs> that capitalism is gonna is gonna sell you back to yourself when you could just mm-hmm. have it in your family system for free. But you look at how people aren't raised around their grandparents. You've mm-hmm. got these systems where, um, you know, everybody's in their own house with their own washer and dryer and their own mm-hmm. driveway. And people, children, babies are in their own room in a giant house. You're like, babies would survive exactly 20 minutes, you know, two days mm-hmm. if. And only, well, I don't know, a hundred years ago, you would not survive in a whole separate room down the, down the. Is that, is that capitalism or technology? I feel like a lot of our social structures are technologically influenced. You know, every generation deals with this, I think, in a different way. And technology is a big driver of it where people 
you know, sat around fires and told stories, you know, guess what was a disruptor in that radio, you know, right. <laughs> now they're listening to stories on the radio. Then what disrupted that television. Now people are having TV dinners, watching television, you know, and right. they're not around the table. Like it seems like a lot of disruptions in our family social structures are technology driven. And now it's phone. Now you're really separated because now the, the fire sitting around the fire is now on the phone. Yeah. Everyone you know? has their own fire. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, I got my fire. You got your fire. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, everybody can be in a different room. But but you're right. They still have that need for the fire and and yeah. to be in that. But your nervous system hasn't caught up. Your nervous system yeah. doesn't evolve that quickly. So you still yeah. need these attachments. But now you don't have them. Yeah. Now you're in your own room, or you know. So I mean, I was reading something. 63% of young men between the ages of 18 and 34 are not in a relationship. Yeah. You're like, okay, well, I don't know what it's going to take for us to get back. <laughs> this, but I <laughs> personally just want to tell stories about how important it really is. It's like yes. the idea that I'm supposed to be fine on my own or happy, just as happy being alone as I am in a, in a relationship is a fallacy. I just want to mm -hmm. say, it's not true. I'm going yeah. to have to find primary attachment somewhere, either with my dog or my job. Or, yeah. <laughs> the job is just a low quality primary attachment figure. You know what I yeah. mean? So uh, these attachment is so huge. Do you think one of the issues is um, people mistake the fact that there could be hurt in these areas or pain with it, that that needs to be avoided? As opposed to, well, that's part of, yeah, you know, it's not like if only if the attachment is pure and good and gives me honey and I don't get stung by the bees making the honey, you know, that it's valid. Right. I mean, I guess, yeah, we feel like we're supposed to avoid all negative experiences. Right. You know? Right. Exactly. And, or that something can be tough, too, even though right. it, if that might be good. You right. Know? Well, I also think you get these um, people organize themselves in these ways, you know, so you go to New York and L.A., for example, Most, <laughs> many people there have left their, you know, their families or either yeah. they left their families or there wasn't as much to begin with. Because like I look out my window mm. in Ohio and I sometimes go, these people don't care if they go to a premiere, really. They would be like, leave my mom, my dad, my sisters, my brothers, everybody. Sure. No. You can have it. I'll just go there a couple times a year and go to Disneyland or something. <laughs> sure. They don't need to like leave everything here to go chase a dream in that way. Mm -hmm. But I think that what you get is a lot of insecure attachment strategies operating in the biggest cities. Yeah. And I used to think that like it's over time that I see this, you mm -hmm. know, it's over time. And then you look into the dating pool, the secure functioning people, they pair up fairly young, let's say, yes. and then they're on, they're out. You can't find, they're not in the pool anymore. Right? Pool. Yeah. <laughs> it feels good to them to be close. Yeah, yeah. The other people who it feels either anxious or engulfing, that would be the mm -hmm. avoidance. Mm -hmm. um, they're like, ah, and they all <laughs> date each other and confirm yeah. the worst theories about the world. Confirmation bias all over the place. <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot to work out. It can be worked out. It's just that you have to kind of yeah. know what you're dealing with and then yeah. take new actions to yeah. have like, the healing. And I feel like 
that's kind of what my work is all centered on. Yeah. You have so much emotional intelligence, you know, and, and I know it comes from this fractured life that you had. What, like, how did you first, what was your first step in the emotional healing? Because I, I believe that that emotional intelligence was always there and something had to crack it open, you know? Okay. So I would say there's like an interesting paradox where your first steps are going to be both the solution and the failure, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What came to mind when you said that was like, well, my first step was getting married when I was 19. Mm -hmm. You know, I got oh, okay. into a relationship when I was 17. I got married when I was 19. And that was my first step toward like, this is really important. I need to resolve this. Here's mm -hmm. how I'm going to do it. Now, mm -hmm. went about it all wrong because there's mm -hmm. no 17 year olds that I know <laughs> are really ready for yeah. what that is. But you could see that I was moving in that direction. Mm. That was a lot that I learned from being in a relationship for five years at that age mm -hmm. that kind of consolidated and set me up in a way to be able to go out into the world, you know? Mm -hmm. um, now, the other thing is, is that I had a foster family that was incredibly strong and a secure base. And I'm actually still in a relationship with my foster family. Um, there were years in my twenties and thirties that I wasn't super close to them, but I'm back and they're there. And that's incredibly valuable. That family taught me what a family should feel like. How many, how many foster families were you in? Oh my gosh. I mean, my foster mom told me I was in two dozen foster homes. Wow. Two dozen. That seems crazy. So I mean, I don't know. I was in a mm -hmm. bunch. I yeah. went back to my mom and dad at 18 months. My dad was really the the steady one. And mm -hmm. then when I was three, he went into prison for the first time, like a long... Three years old. Yeah. He went to Leavenworth for four years. And I went to live with my foster family, the Carlsons. And then when he got out, he took me back. And I went to live with him and the woman who is the Nadine character in mm -hmm. the... Um, in unprisoned. And then he went right back a year later and I stayed with her until I was 18. Hmm. What was when you were the first time he was in prison, you were very young. You were three when he first went to prison. Uh, yeah. For a long time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what was the, the mythology that you were living with during that time to, you know, as a child, like where was he in your mind? If you have a memory of that, he was real. I mean, my foster family, so they were like what I would call like Jimmy Carter Christians, right? Mm -hmm. This is before <laughs> evangelicalism became a political movement. They were about literally like um, what Jesus was really about. So they embraced my dad, everyone mm -hmm. in this world. Like, you know, my dad did a lot of hustling and some pimping and, you mm -hmm. know, did a lot of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And he had these two women that he um, worked with. <laughs> yes, so to say. <laughs> Some employees. Yes. And they had, we, like, we would have those ladies. I remember they came over for Sunday dinner, you know? Mm -hmm. And, like, they brought in my dad's mom, my dad's family. Like, mm -hmm. we went to Leavenworth at least twice a year. Mm -hmm. My dad was real. 
You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like I went to see him. They embraced him. I think my dad also did his, my dad was very seductive mm-hmm. and he, I found a pile of letters actually that he had written to my foster mom. So he started a correspondence with her. Wow. She really, really loved him. You know what I wow. mean? She was like, Harold is a wonderful person, which he is, was. Um, but he also was going to do Harold. You know what I mean? Like he would mm-hmm. betray, let you down. Like he would go back to prison, yeah. do crime. Like every, I mean, there, he never didn't do it. He never didn't until the very, very, very end. Mm-hmm. And then he, he just recently died. Like, Two months ago. Did you have a chance in, in his last years to resolve some of your issues? Did, did he evolve at all in all of this? Or He didn't evolve, but we did get some kind of resolution. We came to, mm-hmm. like, I always loved my dad. I was sure. always close to him. He always called me every, you know, frequently. I would say every two weeks he called me for my entire life, you know? Wow. Yeah. The whole thing in the show, but he sent me cards for every single holiday, you know, Halloween, like, St. Patrick's Day, like he was there. Um, he was just there from in there. Yeah. Um, and I visited him at least two or three times a year, every year up until I was 14. And then I was like, all right, I don't want to go to prison anymore. And then I sort of had a period of like rebellion where I was like, I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to know you. And then when I got married, which is to say, once I got safe, I opened back up to him and we had a relationship from, you know, all the way until he died. And when he got out of prison, um, we did a couple things. The first thing we did is I said to him when he got off parole, so he would come to see me. He, he was living with his sisters in Michigan because unlike mm-hmm. the show, I was not going to let my dad live with me. <laughs> <laughs> right. I could let him live with me on TV and explore what that might be. Yes, like. exactly. But I said to him, okay, you're off parole. You can go anywhere in the world. Where do you want to go? I'll take you anywhere. And mm-hmm. he's like, cause by this time I'm like a TV writer. I have a little money. And yeah. he's like, well, I don't know. I don't even know what's out there. And I'm like, right, this man has lived in a cell basically for seven years and um, on and off. And um, so I decided, well, you know, I like Paris, like I said. Um, I said, everyone should see the Eiffel Tower before they die. So I'm taking you to Paris. And so my son, who was 19 at the time, my dad and me, we went to Paris. And on the first night, I was, I had never spent more than like three hours at a time with my dad. Hmm. I've never lived in a house yeah. with him since wow. 1973. And even then that was for like one year. That's so interesting. It's so true. It's, it's isolated. And the word isolated is the, every word that you have to describe this relationship has a power in itself, you know, <laughs> but just the isolated nature yeah. of having to see him. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the first day, I was like, and we had this whole conversation that is in the pilot, which mm-hmm. is the conversation of how could you leave me with, with this woman, Pauline yeah. mm-hmm. and how, and why did you take me out of the best home I ever had? Mm. And his answer was, which I didn't put into the show, but his answer was because you were mine. Hmm. And I was like, Oh my God. 
And then I turned to my kid and I, I'm like, well, you see why I'm like this, <laughs> you know? And, and here's the thing. I was like, all right, we can go home now. I got everything I needed, but then we still had nine more days. Oh my God. Like, what have I fucking done? <laughs> but it turned out to be us really starting a whole relationship from that point forward. And uh-huh on a whole new level. That was a huge part of our, like our coming back together as a family. So, yeah, it's funny. A friend of mine, who's kind of a life coach, she's brilliant. Um, I love having conversations because I love these types of conversations. They just, you know, I just find them so interesting, but he always said that children are the physical manifestation of all the unresolved issues of the parents. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. and, and I was like, Oh my God. That's like, there's so much truth in that. And sometimes, it's sometimes so- you cannot resolve something in a generation without a, a resolution in a previous generation. Sometimes, you know, like if you resolve it up here, it can be resolved down here, yeah. which is, you know, things are connected in that way sometimes, you know. That to me is how I understand the concept of karma. I was karmically, I in. You know, what's that when you like, you are born a certain place. That's how it, I decided where I was going to be born, you know, decided, whatever that means. But we are in a karmic relationship. And so if I shift, he can shift. Mm-hmm. And if he shifts, I can shift. And then I see how my son, who doesn't have my trauma, he has his trauma. Some of them have made their way down to him, but mm-hmm. it's nothing compared to what I had in the mm-hmm. sense of, so he's like the most healed one in the system and he pulls the other two of us up. He'll be like, mom, <laughs> not like that. And I'll yeah. be like, he's right. If I wow. let him show me, you know? Yeah. But that openness, it takes a certain amount of work to get to that openness where you stop, where you, you realize you're kind of watching a movie in life. Mm-hmm. You know, it is not, what is reality? Well, there are a lot of versions of it, you know, mm-hmm. it's like quantum. And then you choose which one you want to be in. That's what I came to through mm-hmm. a lot of living in California and a lot of spiritual stuff. You realize like, oh, I can, I don't manifest a whole bunch of circumstances around me so much as I align myself with circumstances that already exist that I've decided I'm going to call this version reality. Yeah. I could just as easily call that version reality just as easily. The one where I, you know, go down the road where I, oh, you know, all the things that happen to people who have my childhood, you know, the, the self-destruction and those types of roads. Yeah. Basically reenactments of the, mm-hmm. of the generational trauma. Yeah. So, I mean, I think about that. That's something I really want to tackle mm-hmm. in the story is like, the how how what was done to us as black people mm-hmm. separation you know all of it the all the traumas violence you know being prisoned chained you know enslaved and that is a consciousness that we carry and it's incredibly hard to break out of that consciousness. Incredibly yeah. hard. It feels so real. And now, and we do it to ourselves also, yeah. you know, it's like everything that I was trying to get out of are things that were generationally imposed 
upon the, you know, several hundred years worth of people in my lineage. So is it any surprise that I would think that is reality, you know? Yeah. My sister and I had this conversation when she she was talking about it, uh, just the social trauma that black people have had to endure and the PTSD, so to speak, to borrow an overused term of that and how it's manifested itself in different ways. And of course, the examples of overcoming that are great, you know, and should be applauded, but you can't really... There's no real way to have people understand this because people put it in political terms or they really don't understand the social construct of what it was like to be black in America for so long. It's it's very recent. It's very recent that things truly have changed and they have, but it doesn't erase the trauma history, you know, and that trauma history shows up in a lot of different unexpected ways, you know. Um, sometimes hurt people hurt people, but sometimes hurt people heal people. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know both of those. Cause this, I want to <laughs> write about this and it's mm-hmm. like, this is such an important conversation. I feel like the, look, what you're saying, it's like, there's a lot of understanding that we lack about the connection between Absolutely. generational trauma and the way Absolutely. people behave. And unpack that a little bit. Yeah. And you don't, there doesn't have to be a victim story aspect exactly. to it. Because the storytelling for me comes from the insight into it, you know, like, what are you drawing out of it that is, you know, the dramatization of it. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. You're a powerhouse of a person balancing it all. Work, life, family, podcast. And your ride should be no different. The 2024 Hyundai Sonata Hybrid is a powerhouse of a sedan that meets all your needs. With the sleek front end, plus stylish interior, an available 12.3-inch digital instrument cluster, and seamless tech integration. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the new 2024 Hyundai Sonata Hybrid. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. If you're busy like me and you're trying to catch your kids' games, it's important to have somewhere where you can go to find a good hotel. We're all over the place. Sometimes... You know, we're in Florida, we'll be in New York. You want to take the wife on a quick vacation and get away? Whether you're looking for a relaxing getaway or heading out of town to see the playoffs, Hotels.com app has a perfect hotel for every trip. Compare up to five hotels side by side so you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings without having to switch back and forth between options. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like... Can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. So, you married three times. What gave you the confidence to start giving relationship advice? Like, do you say, I don't know how to do this, but I'm going to tell other people how no, to do no, it. It's not because I don't really see. I, I never get the word advice. I don't give advice. I give information. Mm-hmm. I'm a journalist. You know, oh, that's I mean? hilarious. So all I'm doing is going, oh, hey, did you know? That 
three different attachment styles. And it sounds like you're in this thing that's called the pursuer distancer dynamic. And then yeah. people go, yes, you know, all I'm doing is giving you information. That's so true. Yeah, that's so like, true. Yeah. And then once you hear that you're actually not unique, I'm not yeah. even telling you what to do. I mean, you decide what you need to do once you yeah. That what you're doing is not specific to you. It's a pattern, you know, and then sometimes I can like give people real like um, mechanical like because I, I was talking with this woman. I was in New York yesterday. I was on the Today mm -hmm. Show or something and I had mm -hmm. hair and makeup, right? Yeah. You want to talk about relationships, just get hair and makeup people in a room. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so we're talking and I was saying, oh, I wish you had texted me. Because I would have said, don't use this. This word is going to trigger the dynamic that you do not want to be in. Because oh. she was like, he was distancing, because of course. And right. then she's like, I'm hurt. I'm like, the minute mm. you say hurt to mm. a distancer, they literally feel like you just stuck there. You're like, uh, uh, they can't breathe. Because that's their whole wound. Is yeah. that... 100% responsible for somebody's feelings and they were engulfed. So I, I'm just like, shoot, cause you could have stepped outside that dynamic. Mm. And, and I just have a lot of information about how the dynamics get sort yeah. of enacted. I know it because I've done it myself. Yeah. <laughs> yes. No. I love how your whole energy changed in that too, because that's what I love about your Instagram. Cause to me, it always looks like some, this is what it looks like to me. I'm just going to okay. describe it. Where something just happened. It goes, okay, this shit just happened to me and I got to share it with you guys. Like, like that's what it, that it has the feeling of that. Like, oh, like good. <laughs> it's very intimate because you have a very intimate connection with the audience. And I, I believe the intimacy comes from the experience. Like, okay, let's talk about dependence because like, you're like, this shit just happened to me. Now I have to share it. Or it yeah. happened to me back in the day. And now I was just talking to a girl. Cause I have a number of people who just call me and that's sure. how I got started. They would be like, yeah. my friend call you. And I'm like, sure. You know, <laughs> and then as I'm talking, I'm also figuring it out for myself. Yeah, Cause yeah. I'm still working on it. You know, I'm sure. in a relationship. I'm still trying to work it out. Yeah. It's not that I'm different. I'm, I have a lot of the same feelings I've always had. I mm -hmm. take different actions. That's it. And because I'm taking different actions, the dance is different. You know, basically I'm on the anxious side and I'm attracted to people on the avoidance side. Okay. Sure. So once you get that, you're like, all right, no problem. But it's not like I'm, I went out and found a secure person this time. No, I just am willing to take secure actions in the same kind of dynamic that I'm usually in. And lo and behold, I'm having a new experience. A lot of people think they have to change, yeah. but there are some things you can't change. What you have to do is get into a relationship with it, the proper relationship with it. And then you can have a different experience, right? And that's what people yeah. don't get. And I feel like they could relax. If you knew that, you wouldn't be thinking you're doing it wrong. You would just be like, it's a chance to get to do practice again. Right. Because you're interpreting something as a threat when that's your interpretation is that it's a threat, you know, but it's like, but what if it's not a, th what if you, it was the same situation, but it wasn't a threat. How would you react? They go, Oh, I would react. Okay. Okay. Then 
act as if it's not a threat. <laughs> that is really hard, though, because our bodies yeah. do all this wiring and our yeah. bodies recall things. But if you act outside of it, you know what I mean? You take that other action, pretty soon you get what's called earned secure. Mm-hmm. By pretty soon, I mean like 20 years. I know. <laughs> what do you think, uh, if you're giving advice to people, is the best way to, let's say, get into a healthier relationship with these things about themselves. Do you think it's therapy? Uh, I mean, that certainly is a road for many people. Is, is that, do you still, do you feel that's the best way? But what, what, what can people do? You know? Well, I think the real thing is, so any, you have to become self-aware. Okay. You, and yeah. so therapy helps with the self-awareness. Yoga helps mm-hmm. with the self-awareness. You know, reading books helps with the self-awareness. Mm-hmm. So the self-awareness is where you start to realize that you've been in an operating system, mm-hmm. Android, and it's not the only operating system. Mm-hmm. Even though you're like, no, it only works this way. Actually, nope, there are a whole other operating systems. So anything that helps you step back and see that. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know. I haven't done this, but I, I would. Um, I'm interested in it. Like the ketamine, the MDMA, the all those modalities. I think the reason yeah, yeah. they're so powerful is because they literally help you see that, oh, your mind is just an operating system. And if yeah. you recode some stuff, all the different ways you could do that, you would have a new experience. It kind of breaks up reality for people in some ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what is the most important thing? I mean, that's all very theoretical. The most important thing is learning what secure functioning relationships, how they operate and taking Mm -hmm. those actions. It's basically, if you're acting insecurely, you are creating insecure in that second, in that Mm -hmm. breath in that moment, in that day, in that week. If you are acting securely, you are creating secure in that breath, in that second, in that day, in that week. So the more secure you do, the more secure you get, period. And it's very, it's, it's very uh, boots on the ground. It's not like a, a pill you take. It's not, it's just yeah. like, it is, you earn it, you know, it's like putting um, money in the bank. I firmly believe in that. I was con- kind of coming up with the philosophy years ago and it was, uh, you know, I'm, I can be very contrary sometimes to, I think if a lot of people are doing something, it's a clue to me not to be doing it sometimes, you know, <laughs> I get suspicious of, of too many people doing something, you know, but I just like to think of my own or just look at things differently. You know, it's probably where a lot of my humor comes from, but, uh, I, I felt we were getting too much into a feelings culture you know, and and I believe feelings are the last thing you want to rely on for a guide in life, That's you know, because, <laughs> oh, my God, they're so eph- ephemeral and they can change so much, you know. Mm-hmm. And I thought if people focus more on actions, you know, you're you're in a lot better shape. And I said, you're people always like if you look at the question of what do I want? People focus on their feelings to answer that question. But I said, actually, the betrayer of what you want are your actions. Your mm-hmm. actions always tell you what you want. You know, your feelings tell you what you're interested in, but your actions tell you what you want. You wow. know, and so like if you it. want, if you want to really find out what you want, look at your actions and to make a change in what you want, you have to change your actions, not right. your feelings about it. Yeah. You're making a great point. And I think there's like a interplay between the two. Yeah. Whatever your tendency is, if you don't like your current situation, you're going to need to flip your tendencies. 
So yeah. if you always go this way, you're going to need to go that way. Like there's right. not a size fits all. You know, some people need to focus more on feelings and some people need to focus more on behaviors, you know? Yeah. Behaviors are key, though. They are key. Yeah. And they're kind of undervalued sometimes, which is why, you know, I was looking at that, you know, yeah. or the the value has been taking off of them culturally in many different ways where that used to be the value yeah. was action. See, I also I would differentiate between emotions and uh, like when you talk about feelings, it's like, what are we talking about? You know, are we talking about um, the way energy moves through the body. No, I'm talking about what pe- the story that people tell themselves about who they should be and who they are. Oh, That's yeah. what I mean. I'm talking about the the mythology that you have. Not okay. not so much. Uh, I don't mean like fear or you know yeah, yeah. emotions. Okay. Yeah, I, I mean feelings in that way. The story that you tell, you know, because lives are everything. Yeah, like I don't deserve things. That's a story that you tell. That's what I mean by feelings. You know. As opposed to acting as if you do deserve it, whether you believe it or not, is irrelevant. But if you totally. act as if you do it, then that will th- that's what will manifest. That's what I mean. You know what yeah. helped me with that was I had a therapist, oh, I don't know, 20 years ago. And she was like, Here was, here's the solution to, I never get anything or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> you got a narrative. And she would say, until now. And then boom, it's over. You know what I mean? You're like, yeah. I always get hurt until now. You know, I never get what I want until now. I don't deserve it until now. Like, yeah. until now <laughs> solves every oh, single that's great. I love that. dead end. Isn't that great? I love that. Yeah. It just helped me so much. And I was like, okay, until now. All right. Let's go. Yeah. There's something <laughs> powerful about being a writer, too. And if people did that, I believe also that people don't realize many times they're operating out of a script they've given themselves, you know, and that they believe that that is the final draft. 100%. You know? And it's like, mm, I think you can make some rewrites here. You know? I have notes. <laughs> yes. <Yeah>. I <laughs> have notes. Yes. <laughs> Uh, really funny. Yeah, and it's like no, you can re you can rewrite this second act. You don't have to, exactly. that's not the final draft. Yeah, I know that's true, but that's all very abstract. And I yeah, do sure. think it helps sure. to be able to abstract. Yeah, because you know, um, somehow you've got to get yourself out of whatever boxes you think you're in, and that yeah takes a lot of like cognitive work. What's the biggest obstacle? The biggest obstacle to getting out of your story for four people that you see out there. I want to say the same thing you just said. It's like, mm-hmm. it's that the story feels true. Mm, right. and people believe it. And yeah. I'm like, okay, I get that it feels true, but that doesn't mean it's a fact. There's yeah. another reality that doesn't yet feel true, but will feel true after you act on it. You know, I always think about um, yoga and it's like, you're in some yoga class and you're like, really chaturanga again? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it's like, how many chaturangas can you do with the life you want? It's exactly what you just said. The life mm-hmm. you want, just do another chaturanga. Don't don't pay attention to what your mind is telling you about what it says is true. Because yeah. I know, having been born where I was born, mm-hmm. all the realities that I lived that were so true for me. Money's hard to come by. Everyone's going to abandon me. Like mm. in intense belief mm-hmm. system, I was coming out of childhood with, and none of that is true for me anymore. Yeah. None of that is true. And I do think this is why um, 
even though, you know, I look like a abject failure in the area of relationships, I have been married. I didn't think so. No, no, no. But if you just Mm -hmm. look at my resume, you know, I have not been in until now. (laughs) I have not lived with anyone. I didn't live with anyone for 16 years. Mm -hmm. Really took the thing down all the way down to the studs. Mm. Figured out what was going on with me Mm -hmm. and didn't do what came naturally for a very long time before I was willing to engage. It was like I had to learn a whole new language Mm. and it wasn't going to happen in a year or even two. It took me many, many, many years. So um, I had a lot of belief system. It felt very true. And that was the biggest obstacle, you know, and I had to be able to change. I had to do things that didn't feel true, act on ideas that didn't feel true. That's what I mean. Right. Where those feelings don't matter. It's the action. That's right. right. Yeah. Once I got that, I started to glimpse every once in a while. I catch a glimpse. Oh, and then it would consolidate. So I started writing scripted television when I was 42. I had been writing TV news. I was in a band. I was sort of like working part time. Oh yeah, you weren't attached. You were living in the world. As, totally, I'm as floating leaf, around. You know, and at one the, point, I, and this yeah. was all just me reenacting the way mm-hmm. I grew up. A single mom who was like, "I'm a real estate agent. Oh, I'm a mm-hmm. secretary. Oh, I'm doing this now. I'm going back to school." Like she was just all over the place. And I remember waking up one day and being like, mm-hmm. "Oh wow, I'm 41 years old." I don't have health insurance. You know, my kid is covered by his dad. And um, I have reenacted every single thing that drove me crazy when I was growing up. But I still had that belief that money was hard to come by. Long story short, I get my first job. And you know, Mm -hmm. that's a two-year... I mean, I I won the lottery. I'm 42. I'm starting to make money. And of course, the first job is nothing. It's not the success. It's really the second job. Yeah. <laughs> the first job you get a break. The second job someone thinks you're a writer. <laughs> exactly. First job. Hey, yeah. Second yeah. one. Oh, oh, so oh I get oh, that okay. second job, and at a certain point, might have even been the third third job, but somewhere in there, I caught a glimpse of this radical idea. Oh, I'm never gonna be poor again. And this is 45 years of living. Mm, I was, wow. Poor was like right there, right there mm. around every corner. All of a sudden I caught it and I was like, oh, I don't ever have to be poor again. And it came in as an intuitive thought. And then, and then I decided that was reality now. And then I just, I just married that idea mm. and I acted on it. And then, you know, I haven't been yeah. poor yet since then. And this is not like I stopped being poor at 14. You know what I mean? I was four decades into my being poor career. <laughs> being poor career. <laughs> that was a major life shift. Right. <laughs> so. Well, part of that, I believe, too, is there is an avoidance of abundance that a lot of people have. You know, avo- abundance avoidance is a very real thing, you know. Why do you think people do it? Well, I, you know, why is a fascinating question, but I think there's, for some people, there's a social aspect to it, you know, like, because it can change their social structure or or they have a judgment about it and the judgment is in a true judgment, you know, or there there's feelings about abundance. It's like 
a person that can't stand success type of thing, you know, or can't take yes for an answer. It's in that category, you know. Well, I remember my dad calling me from prison when I bought my first house, which was years after this other moment. And I answered the phone. It was the first time I answered the phone. He's in prison. I'm in my new house. I mean, it's a very modest house, but I was in it. And I thought, oh, I feel guilty. I don't want to tell him I'm in this house. Yeah. I don't want to make him feel bad. Like there was all this. So I think what you're saying about the social, it, it kind of can drive a wedge between you mm. and there was a guilt. I don't know how else to say it. Yeah. You know, and it was like, oh, this is part of why I've stayed poor. Yeah. Because I don't want to make anybody, I didn't want to have to have that thing in between me and, you know, the people I care it about. It takes away certain excuses too, you know, certain things like that, you know, you yeah. have to operate a little differently. I think with abundance, you know, it allows you in a different way to be more authentically connected to gratitude, you know, um, I think people, it's easy for them to have gratitude when they don't have things, you know, uh, to be in a relationship with it, you know, but, you know, and by abundance, I don't necessarily mean material things, you know, abundance comes in a lot of different ways, you know, flourishing. Sure. That something good is happening to you, you know, exactly. that's what I mean, you know. Yeah, because I was just about to say, I think when good things started to happen, I realized that, that it was risky because now I could lose it. Mm -hmm. And when you don't have anything, right. there's nothing to lose. Absolutely. I know. And I also, I remember having this thought about being a writer. As I started to get some success, it started to feel kind of dangerous. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, it's scary to succeed in this one way. Absolutely. You know, mm. and I remember thinking, this is why everybody's at Starbucks on their computer, and the the people who are not making it. I'm like, deep down, unconsciously, I was not making it because it was. I was going to have to face this feeling mm. if I did, and this feeling was, you know, I could, uh, I don't know, humiliate myself. I had to. I had to produce, I had to show up, exactly. I had to come up with something. That was a lot harder than sitting at Starbucks complaining about how unfair everything is. <laughs> yeah, there's a level of accountability that you have to deal with now. Oh, yeah. yeah, of showing up. That's why there's such happy times when people remember those things. You know, all that stuff. Yeah, it's uh, true, it's easy. Has doing the show, uh, and I appreciate you being here, by the way, and don't forget, guys, I'm Prison on Hulu. It's such a nice watch, you know. It really is. You're watching pain being dealt with in different ways, but there's a comfort food element about this that I think people get out of it. And I think that's because the, you can tell these people really do love each other. There's a, there's a genuine right. aspect of it. Has, has doing the show changed you in any way? I know you talked about you were going through kind of a change, but has the process of doing it itself, Tracy is now a different person. Or I wouldn't say different. That's too big of a word, but, but you know what I mean? Um, I have the sense in, all, so the show just came out March 10th, yeah. but, um, I do have the sense that I crossed a Rubicon into a world and I'm not really going to go back to the other world. Now that's true. Every time you expand, yeah. you know, so I definitely have that sense, but I would almost say that the change begat the show like i'm in a relationship that is unlike any relationship i've ever been in and that it really is a secure base and i think 
my agreement with the universe was that I don't want to get a show. Because, you know, when people get first shows, a lot of times they end up in the fetal position. <laughs> basically <laughs> kills them. Yeah, believe me, I, I know what that feels like. I've been, yeah. a, I've been a television writer long enough mm. to watch a lot of people yeah. implode yeah. under the pressure of getting a Absolutely. show. Maybe the reason it took me 16 years is because my agreement is that I wanted to be able to do it without it killing me or, you know, out ending up in the fetal position. And I, I'm, I have such a secure life that I'm living that I can do the show and I have the resources, you know, emotional, psychological, physical on every level. I have the resources to do this show. So, um, it doesn't mean I couldn't have done it before. It just means it wouldn't have been as resourced as it, as it was, you know? Um, so, but how has it changed me? I don't even know yet. I feel like very fulfilled in being able to do these things that are on my mission, that are on my purpose around helping families, people, mm. but in particular, the black family, because mm. family or fiance, the show I host on Oprah Winfrey Network, that's the same show. It's just the reality show version, but it's the same material. Mm -hmm. How do our generational traumas affect the way we come together in relationship, mm -hmm. you know, and how it's all about healing the family, healing the individual. And, um, I'm very fulfilled that I get to do work that is so much what I feel like it is what I came to do. That's great. You can't take away your bad childhood or you can't remove the trauma, but you can. And I, I, I say this and I gave it to the character. You can make it sacred. Mm. You can make it mean something. You can make it, you can help others with it. That's great. Um, did your dad have a chance to see any of the show before he passed away or? Mm. No. Mm -hmm. So the way it unfolded is that he died on January 21st mm -hmm. and the next day Nadine died. Oh my goodness. I know. Wow. These people can't act right. Even yeah. <laughs> oh, I mean, I was yeah. pretty walloped mm -hmm. when it happened and I'm still, then I got into this whole whirlwind around the show and I have a feeling that some of that grief is going to be waiting sure. for me when things calm down. Mm -hmm. um, they had seen each other once in 40 years, but that's how you talk about karma, you know, and, and who's the overlap in their karmic Venn diagram? Me. So in some respects, they don't know each other died in 24 hours of each other. I know that mm. that that happened for me, you know, and I don't know why, mm -hmm. but I will say that, um, <laughs> I mean, I sometimes joke that they really did not want to see my show. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's the ultimate of I am not watching. I'm going to do whatever it takes not to watch this show. That's the ultimate avoidance. There's avoidance it there. It's the ultimate like, I don't want to see what she went yeah. through. I don't want to see how I impacted her. I don't want to see oh, what she thinks. That's great. I love it. Yeah. I, I mean, thank you for laughing because it no, would sound more somebody who wasn't finding the humor no, in it. But I I'm like, it. so did my dad see the show? No, he didn't. <laughs> but I think he didn't want to see it. You know, I don't think he really wanted to that see it. That is amazing. That is amazing. Isn't it? Well, everybody else should see it. Let me just say that. Uh, thank unprisoned, you. Unhulu. 
out of Onyx, which is really putting out some good stuff. Not not because I'm working over there too, but you know, I mean, I mean, they are putting out some good stuff. They really stuff. are, you know. So check it out, you guys. Uh, the whole uh, season is there, and I mean, it's just a matter of time before you get that second season. I mean, it's going to happen. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you. I'm going to say yes to that. Yeah. There you go. And um, you know, because there's more story to tell. Absolutely. And I love how people are seeing things that they never thought would be dramatized that's being kind of healing for yeah. them. So congratulations, Tracy. That's so great. Very, very happy for yeah. you guys on the show. Thank you so much Thank for being you here. So much. It's been a great experience. Yeah. Tracy McMillan, everybody. I'm prison. Go watch it now. <laughs> <laughs>